Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. In this episode, Natasha Waugh chats with director Imogen Murphy about her work on Dead Still. A series of murders spark an investigation of Dublin's criminal underbelly in this six-episode period drama set in 1880s Ireland. So Imogen Murphy, thank you so much for chatting to us in Film Ireland. And thank you so much. Um, I got the first two episodes of Dead Still um, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. It is such a great concept and it is so unique. And I suppose I just want to start off with asking you when John Morton came to you and how did he pitch this and what was it that grabbed you? Um, well, yeah, good to talk to you. And um, yeah, I'm delighted you liked the, the show so far, the bits I think that you've seen of it. So the, the thing originated actually, uh, seems like a long while ago now. In fact, it's about six years ago, I reckon. Uh, I think 2014. I was going to be working with a couple of things um, with John, uh, John Morton. And we wanted to, at the time to put something in for this uh, RTE Storyland scheme. So we just were getting some ideas together. And the thing was, John John was going to write, I would direct. And Claire Gormley, a uh, fantastic producer, was was going to produce. So John pitched me, um, I think maybe about uh, almost a dozen uh, ideas, which are all just incredibly uh, diverse. Uh, and I, I just heard this one, which was really short. The bones of it was, it's a, a post-mortem photographer in 1880s Dublin uh, getting into scrapes. So I was like, yeah, <laughs> let's go with this one. Um, so off we went and made a little uh, promo to just put in for RT Storyland, really nothing more at the time. And as it turns out, it, it, it wasn't successful uh, for that. It, it probably was a bit ambitious to do a period drama for that kind of scheme. Um, but mm -hmm. then meanwhile, it, it um, came to the attention of Deadpan Pictures in Dublin. And they wanted to kind of see if they could bring it somewhere else. So myself and John just weren't quite sure, would this be, uh, you know, was it, was it even a movie length? Was it a half hour show, a, a one hour uh, series? But we, we quickly came to the conclusion and based on a bit of feedback from some other broadcasters and people out there that this will work really well as a one hour series, you know, potentially six to eight episodes that within that time that would allow us to just really explore the world, really know the characters and flesh it out, you know, in, in a much fuller way than we could do, for example, if we were doing this in a half hour slot. Yeah, because it kind of demands to be episodic, I feel. I feel like this is the adventures of um, of Leonard Hansett, you know, first and foremost. And it would it feels like a shame to kind of even condense it into two hours. You know, it's nice to be have uh, these, is it six episodes altogether? It, it is six episodes altogether. Um, and we've had a little bit of feedback uh, from the States where it's just started airing. Um, people were kind of wondering, oh, you could, could go with a couple more episodes, you know, which absolutely the material is there for it to have been, say, eight, uh, maybe even 10 episodes. But truth being told, uh, it's all down to budget. And uh, we, yeah, we, with regards to the show of this scale and scope, especially being a period show, our biggest limitation was budget and uh, even even at the extent we did it where we, we managed to do six one-hour episodes in fact the budget for our show was quite a bit less than your your comparable other period drama including those shot in Ireland like the Ripper Street and all of those so we were actually at a much lower budget level so in terms of you know we were very happy to be able to go and make our show 
but the constraints of, of budget were just obviously all around us all of the time. But that's the way it goes. It is. I feel like it's a, a common conversation I have a lot in, in, in Ireland and the art industry. And when it comes to, I suppose, homegrown television here is that the budgets are, are small. I mean, do you think do you think that's where we should be you know, investing more is, you know, should we be doing should we be looking more towards TV because it's so in demand, but it's also such a great time for it? Um, it is. I mean, I think with regards to television, the landscape is changing massively, as we've known for you know a couple of years now. But I think with regards to Ireland, uh, it's really changing because we're only perhaps in the last year or so starting to see the, the rise of really proper international co-production. Um, so that that enables Irish productions to be made on at least some kind of decent budget, and in fact, that's what happened with us. I mean, our the the majority of of, of the funding for this show was from um, from overseas, Canadian, uh, American, and uh, German in the shape of ZDF uh, financing. So, I mean, that that's kind of wonderful because you it enables us to kind of play a little bit in the same ballpark as the international shows. Um, there's still, of course, some restrictions. It's maybe not, not up there with the enormous budgets, but it's starting to happen. And what I really hope to see is international audiences kind of, you know, seeing this new Irish, uh, Irish television uh, and wanting a bit more of it. And in a really, really overcrowded TV environment, um, it's something a little bit different. And, and uh, we've even got that feedback feedback so far uh, for Dead Still, um, that they really like the Irish uh, nature of the world. Um, while sometimes not being able to understand every accent. Uh, sure. Uh, but they're still, they respond to it. They respond to the Irishness of the show. And I'm, I'm kind of quite proud of that, happy with that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it's it, it, one thing that struck me is that, you know, um, the characters move around uh, regions a lot insofar as their accents and things like that. So it's not just all Dublin focused, which can, um, you know, people do talk about, you know, wanting to see more of the Midlands or the West and things like that. And I feel like there's a bit of every character uh, in the show, which is really nice. Yeah, we um, that, that was certainly deliberate from the the writing point of view, I think back when uh, we were outlining the, the pilot, uh, where obviously we would meet all the central characters, we were really determined that, it, you know, at least one of these characters would not be from the kind of Dublin milieu. So we have a, a character of a, a detective who, you know, we kind of said he, he can be from anywhere. We were thinking maybe Munster, uh, as it turns out, um, he, he comes from Cork, which is where I'm from originally. So. Uh, it's nice to give a nod to that. But yeah, it was just really important because just like today um, in Dublin, you know, you're, you're meeting people from, from all parts of Ireland. Now, in a strange coincidence, as it happened, um, our three leads all actually originate from Northern Ireland, which was a complete, uh, completely unplanned thing. And, um, you know, it, it, it shows to the amount of talent up in the north in terms of acting, really fantastic actors there. But it did, it did make things a little, a little uh, we had to be a little careful in terms of their accents at the beginning of the mm -hmm. show. So when we were getting into our kind of rehearsal period and having to try to get this, 
you know, quite, quite well to do for two of the characters and more, you know, inner city for the other character. Um, the three actors in rehearsal, you know, were liable to slip into the northern, the lovely northern tones. So um, once we got that ironed out, we were away. But yeah, it's, it's lovely. Um, most parts of Ireland are represented. And I think it was the plan and we were lucky it worked out that way. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very, um, it's a nice kind of rich part of it, I think, uh, that was not lost on me. And it was just really nice actually viewing it, or at least kind of experiencing that way. Um, so I suppose this has such a rich history. I feel like there's so much in the show, um, not just because of the subject matter, but I'm just wondering, did you do, like, was there any research you did uh, to kind of prepare for, for directing this? Yeah, for sure. I mean, in terms of the the period of the show, there is an there is a good amount of available research out there. A lot of documentation and evidence from the times, you know, was was destroyed because of obviously historical events. So sometimes we have to rely on, um, you know, it would, it would actually be documentation from from towns in the UK or other parts of Ireland that we could kind of combine I you know as a director stepping aside from my kind of story writing duties with John once I came to directing it and got very busy with directing and had to just kind of pass ideas on with regards to the script my real my strong kind of uh, instinct was to try to keep the environments as real as possible so you know I found this book on Victorian toilet habits which I was kind of trying to foist onto the script not for not for uh even comic reasons but um just to try and get the try to have the environment come alive in some way I mean you want to kind of feel it and smell it a lot of locations at that time weren't too nice to live in um people didn't you know they didn't live lives like we did today and I I really wanted to somehow get that across I am not sure with the restrictions of of filming and budget and all of that if we did but um maybe if it um if it was to move on uh, further but I think the the point with all this is what you, you know you got to have these aims you, you go into directing a show like this and you really need to aim high um and you know that n not everything I mean you've got a hundred things on your list that you really want to achieve and good if you get you know you know as a filmmaker um if you get 70 percent of them you're doing amazingly but you have to have all of those because otherwise it won't really lift up above the the, the other material out there sure well i have to say like i find you know you're talking about you know budgets and stuff like that i found the production value it was i thought it was really high and i thought it was really like there was not a moment that where i was watching it that i felt out of their universe and like i kind of so badly wanted to have a snoop around Blennerhassett's office and things like that and i'm just wondering as well like i'm gonna i want to ask you about locations in a minute but i was actually very curious the um so obviously uh, Blender has it has this wall full of uh, dead stills and the of dead photography I mean is that real are those real dead dead photos or daguerreotypes um so there are loads of examples of I mean this was a real practice memento mori photography so there are tons of them out there but we of course got into the area of looking at it from a legal point of view and saying well these people are long dead but maybe they have relatives so you know we can't 
we can't um, really whole scale use their images. It would, it would kind of be wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it feels a bit taken advantage, even though they're dead a while now. Uh, so what we did is our, our fantastic art department on the show did a kind of a mock-up. So a mix of two things. We found some images where we could, I guess, alter the faces or something like that. So digitally go in and, and alter the faces. Just so if it was somebody's great grandparent, you know, they, they wouldn't really be recognizable. So we did a part of that. And then the other part we did was we actually set up, you know, proper photo shoots with uh, actors, extras, etc., in costume. Um, did the pale makeup on them, got them to sit very still. Um, so a mix of those. So some of the people on his wall are not actually dead. They're walking around Dublin. You might bump into them someday. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say, if I was directing an episode or, you know, if I was uh, much like yourself, kind of there at the very beginning, I would have insisted that I would be one of those pictures. <laughs> like, that would be me. <laughs> like, that's how I got in. Um, like a Hitchcock thing. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I would... I would tend more to avoid that, but um, when it was actually quite a nice um, part of the pre-production of the show when we got all these guys in to the production offices, because I was running around and then, you know, the way you are in prep, um, just a thousand things to do. And it all seemed very far away, you know, the, the shoot and my actress hadn't come in yet, mm. but we had to get this, this shoot of the, the so-called dead people done in advance. So suddenly coming in and seeing, you know, a queue of people in the corridor in, in the full 1880s gear in amazing costumes, uh, thanks to Cathy Strachan, our costume designer. Um, so that was really, I, I just got a boost. So I didn't need to be one of those. I just needed to see them. So I kind of wandered by yeah. them all, you know, staring at them from every angle. And uh, yeah, it was it was really fun part of the the experience for me that I kind of I kind of knew it would be from when we had done this little promo five years before shooting and that was the period aspect of it um I hadn't particularly the fact that it was set at a period was not what drew me to the show really it was more the characters and uh, you know and their adventures but having experienced the fun of working with you know proper costume and art departments and, and being able to really explore the world through that visual side of it was something I just ended up loving. And I didn't, you know, as you said, you, you like to wander around in these worlds and I didn't have enough time in, in prep. All I wanted to do was spend hours poring over the little props and little details of costume, yeah. but I could just have time to go check them, go, yeah, great, keep, keep going and, and move on. Yeah, it was yeah. a lot of fun in that respect. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. I mean, I, I just, I've gotten so fascinated recently with um, Annie Atkins' work. Yeah, um, I've heard and, like, of her and yeah, she of... does lovely stuff. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that's yeah, kind of she... what I was thinking of when I was, you know, which is always such a fun, it seems to me like such a fun part of, such a fun aspect of making, you know, period pieces. Um, and I suppose kind of, I mean, look, we've touched on, you know, we've kind of answered this question already, but just as I have it down, you know, and I'm so curious because I like, I suppose period dramas to me feel like they might be something I touch on as a director and especially in, in Dublin and in Ireland when there's so many around. But what is important to you, I suppose, as a director going in when you know you're going into period drama? I mean, what's important to you when you're kind of crafting authenticity? It, it can be a tricky one in terms of dealing with a period. Uh, we're certainly starting to see a few shows now where they play completely fast and lose with period and have a load of fun with anachronistic elements or be they in, in speech or 
or visual design. Um, but I really wanted to treat it like, you know, it's, it's a story as if it's set now. Um, I didn't want to mess with the period. I, I wanted to make sure absolutely everything was authentic. And I think we, you know, people worked very hard to achieve that. And I think they did in terms of all the different departments. There probably is a little bit of leeway in terms of things like dialogue. Uh, you know, we, we kind of have this view of, of the past in terms of, uh, or, you know, we might read in research how somebody was supposed to behave, you know, how a young woman in her 20s uh, is, you know, from a well-to-do family is supposed to behave in 1880s Dublin. Well, that's great. And we can we can read or we can research in terms of how she was supposed to behave. But how did she really behave? Um, and, and you've got to see, I, I really like seeing under the surface of, you know, what people are supposed to do and act and feel. And then, of course, what they really do and act and feel. So we did perhaps take a little few liberties with things like that in terms of characters who, in a sense, want to, you know, break out of, of those restrictions or mores of, of, of society at that time. So I suppose the, the key was to, to allow that to happen, but just have the comfort of the viewer feeling, yeah, this is this period and I'm kind of visiting it for this, this hour of watching. Yeah. Um, and I have to say, like, I actually really liked the anachronistic stuff, especially when it came to Blennerhansett's niece, who I actually can't remember her name. Yeah, Nancy. Nancy, just with, I like, I really liked, um, you know, because her character, Nancy, and, you know, her her behavioral stuff sure i mean it may not have uh, may not have been exactly the you know her the way women might behave but honestly i mean i loved that her character was a little bit rebellious and a little bit subversive i mean that's something that i i really enjoy seeing you know if we had gotten nancy's character as being kind of really by the book it, it may not have been so we may not have latched onto her as much and i really enjoyed her her um her her role in it yeah you know looking forward to seeing more for sure um we we did we got that with Nancy and it was really important to us as well because that, by the way as we developed the project the character of Nancy really increased um, in terms of her influence on the story originally the the male the two male characters were perhaps central to the story and she was kind of an adjunct but then you know we especially from my point of view as a as a female director I wanted a really strong female character in there when it comes to her her kind of persona as she's perceived on on screen then i i think certainly a lot of it was in it was in the script of course but just like with casting you know all of the other actors you come to realize that the, the character is really created only when the actor embodies them and um mm. of all the the people you know tons of fantastic actresses who potentially let's say could have played nancy with with Eileen, our actor who did play her, she brought her own personality and her own decisions, I suppose, in terms of dealing with that character. And in our process of kind of rehearsing and working out who the, who this kind of quite spunky 20-year-old, quite naughty um, girl of the 1880s was supposed to be, a lot of it is coming from the actor. You can't try and drag something from the actor that isn't there. And you've got to see what is it that strong you know, in her, him, and, and then you, you've got to kind of try to mold that and make it fit with what's in the script. So that's just the way it goes. I, I do believe that with different casting, you have a really, really different show. Um, and that's what makes it so exciting. It can be a little unpredictable um, when you're, you're first kind of 
few hours of rehearsal can be nerve wracking because you're trying to get this, you know, make this character 3D uh, between you. But yeah, it's a lot. It's, it's, it's a big part of the fun of it. And, and for me, the most challenging, but the most rewarding thing, I think, is like bringing these characters to life. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd have to agree. Um, from my own point of view, um, it's probably my favourite part of prep is rehearsing the cast and allowing them to kind of transform what's on the page. Like they kind of transform themselves, like they give them to themselves so much. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's um, it, absolutely. Uh, I, I think when it comes to actors, you know, I, I have to take my hat off because they're coming into this room, this set, whatever it is. We might have sometimes had quite little rehearsal prior. We just have bits of rehearsal each day and they are really putting themselves in your hands. You know, they have no idea how the thing is going to come out. Um, and they just give that 100%. And sometimes they, they just got to walk away and they no no idea. They have no further control once they leave that set and it's a really kind of it's a really generous uh act of giving it's very cool i think yeah yeah no there is i like that word generous it is like that and actually <laughs> i was uh there was another actor or another director i shadowed very briefly um and actually i did shadow you I was very glad very glad to to get in there very actually Absolutely. it's really lovely to be able to interview you for this having shadowed you before they were doing rehearsal for something and they got like the actor now this was like a week before the shoot and he like she actually said god you're generous like just just for the rehearsal itself he just gave so much no it's, um <laughs> it's uh absolutely and you, you're right in, in terms of generosity and one thing i noticed was we had some actors coming in to to dead still who were they were in for a few days now they, their their role probably went over maybe two or three episodes or something like that so they weren't with us at the beginning. They they weren't in the kind of rehearsal period at the beginning. They kind of have to walk on set. And sometimes these were international actors. So they were coming from, you know, America or the UK. There was no time for rehearsal. So you've just got to go and meet them and try and have breakfast with them and, and um, yeah. very, very quickly uh, try to create some trust and, and, and try to give them a strong something to latch onto for their character. So that, that was my effort, what I was trying to do. But I was amazed by some of them who came in and um, they, they really didn't expect this at all. They, I could see that, and these are people who work quite a lot, uh, very busy, well-regarded actors. And I could see that they, their norm in a sense was to go on a set and uh, kind of you know, be told where to stand, maybe a couple of words from the director, and that was it. And I think that's unfortunate because you know, we, we had a little more time than that. Uh, with a lot of these actors, uh, they seemed really genuinely surprised and delighted. That I was like, no, I'm going to take you away now for 20 minutes and we're just going to chat as we walk to wherever we need to go. But it's, mm. it's, um, it's such a false economy to, to, to bring in actors and really not try to get the best out of them because they're so creative and, and so full mm. of ideas. I'm actually noting that down. False economy. That's a good way to put it. Because I, like I, I've spoken to actors recently who were mostly like day players very typically and they have said you know they've been talking about an experience where you know they've had a very poor experience where they're just shuffled in and that's out and they're out and that's it and they've spoken about really positive experiences much like what you're talking about now which is you know you as a director giving time to them even if it's a very small amount of time just talking to them and kind of like you were saying there 
uh, just investing in their time. I think it is just uh, you, you do have people coming in. I, I guess you're, you're all trying to come in together and make the same show. But what can happen is, especially if it's a day player or something like that, they come in and they're kind of like, they don't have a clue, you know, they know very little. They have their three pages of script. The amount of times I've said to day players or, or people who are in for, you know, a few days, good speaking part, I'd say, you know, you know, remember at the beginning of this episode, you know, your, uh, your boss character did this and they're like, oh no, I only have my two pages. That's it. They weren't given the script. So it's, it's, you know, if you can, in the quickest way possible, um, get that shorthand down, try and let them know it's okay. Try and let them know you want something a bit different from them because often what happens is they come in and they play it safe then because they don't mm. offend anyone. They don't really know what they're supposed to do beyond their couple of pages and they just want to play it really safe. And actually you need to, as a director, you need to kind of let them know, no, I, I want something a bit different and something out of you. And it's okay for you to take the risk and we'll go again. You've, there's more than one take and all of that stuff. Um, and then what that achieves is just you, you, as much as you can, you, you get them now, everyone's in the same world. Now everyone's in the 1880s and, and forget about the outside world. We're in this kind of bubble together and you need to like infuse them with the atmosphere of the bubble, basically. Cool. So I'm just kind of very curious then, just something that you mentioned, you know, we're talking about can cope and not necessarily having, you know, huge amounts of time. Because I remember when, when I was when I was on that with you, you had something like five weeks to shoot, was it six episodes? Um, yeah, six episodes, uh, six half hour episodes in five weeks. That was it. Yep. Yeah. And with this, I mean, I'm not really sure how long it took you to, to do the six, what is it? 45, 50 minute episodes for Dead Still. But as a director, how do you work within those constraints and those limitations? Because that's something that I feel comes up a lot at least with myself and then I've you know heard other directors talk about this and it's just really it was really interesting to see you work around like literally see you work around them and very with very creative solutions and I'm just wondering do you have any tips for people <laughs> for emergent directors like myself <laughs> um in terms of how to deal with the always too short time yes um yeah it's it is very tough and and you know you're you, you're try as a director. You're trying to really achieve the project for your producer in a sense. They're your first, you know, they're the, the first kind of audience, and they're the people who really, you know, who who are managing the time and the amount of money you have and all of this. So you want to absolutely do your best. With regards to the amount of actually shooting time, I mean that's the most expensive time of all because you've got a crew of I don't know sixty. 70 people um and everyone's been paid and all the locations have been paid and all of this and the cheaper time is your time as a director when you're in prep um and to a certain extent when all the other hods are in prep so i think it's really about the prep time i i found that on set you're lucky if you have a good crew if you have a good first ad um which i very luckily did in the shape of Owen mcgee on on this shoot for dead still um, that will kind of save you, but you can't really, as a director, necessarily make things um, go more quickly on set. E each setup tends to take the same time, and, and ADs know uh, how much time that's going to take, um, and, and they estimate it out accordingly. So the one thing you can do is in is in prep. And I guess my advice to to a director, I mean, if you were to go into, uh, particularly with regard to TV, if you were to go into a television show like this, is 
um, really not to get swamped in in prep. Um, and though I've though I'm kind of preaching this, um, I've not always obeyed my own uh, advice here uh, because there seems like there's so much to do. Um, but I would think that if you can, you really just need to to focus and kind of have blinkers a little bit on in prep and focus on the thing that only you can do, you know. Um, you've got departments for everything else there, for for camera, for production design. You, you obviously need to explain to them what world you want to achieve and make sure they get it and, and, and check their approach and see that everyone's going in the same direction. But then you, you kind of have to do what, what is only your job, which is, which is to do with, um, you know, the tone and voice of the show going towards the end results and, and that it, very much including the actors, you know, if you can get everyone and all of those on the same, uh, sharing the same tone, having the same voice, then you've at least done a good bit of your job. So the way to do that, that is, I think, really, I mean, you, you've got to just immerse yourself in, in scripts and, and read them and, you know, do your notes till you're blue in the face. That's just so that you literally almost have it um, off by heart. That's very, very helpful when you're shooting, trying to shoot fast. Um, but that also helps you with tone, you know, and um, at the same time as I'm kind of getting visual references for, for production design, it's also helping me because, you know, I can, it, that's a quick way for me to visually steep myself in, in tone. Um, so for myself, I'd rather find like three amazing visual references than have a whole um, gamut of them, uh, which run the risk of being diluted. So it's, yeah, it's to try to streamline um, streamline your work in prep and um, you know in planning you'll always have to sacrifice something when it comes to shooting so then you you maybe hopefully know what to sacrifice you know does it really matter that we don't have this extra location this is all about the main character's fears so let's just let's just stick them in an alley somewhere and, and not worry about being too fancy here so the more um, streamlined and clear your focus is on that, I think then that helps you because when you get to the whole shooting part of it and, and things get hectic, um, you've just got to, you know, you're, you're the, the greyhound on the track. <laughs> you're just going to keep going. But it's, it's get yourself in good shape uh, beforehand is the key. Mm. If that wasn't too long-winded an answer. No, no, my God, no, it's perfect. Like, I... Like I, I was, I actually just took a note while you were, while you were talking. I was like, yeah, it is. but uh, yeah, I was, so, I was saying to somebody recently, like sometimes filmmaking and directing is all about plan B. You know what I mean? <laughs> like sometimes it's just about understanding that there's a limitation that, you know, if this doesn't work, just be like you were saying, just be, be prepared to be prepared to, to compromise or, and what is that? What does it look like in the moment? So you were talking about tone there. You mentioned it very briefly, and that's actually something I really wanted to ask. Was um, so this is so the subject matter of Dead Still is really grim and is pretty dark. And actually, episode two was kind of spooky, <laughs> um, but it's pretty like it's pretty witty and it's pretty tongue in cheek. And um, I'm just wondering, like as a director, when you're going into something like that, and like how how do you start to craft tone? Does it start with performance? Um, does does it? Did you you know? Does it start with collaborating with the writer very carefully? Where does that happen? In terms of setting and in, in terms of setting the tone, yeah. I mean, lucky you if you can collaborate with the writer uh, as I could um, with John on Dead Still, and you know, be engaged in writing some of the storylines. That's fantastic because then you know the tone isn't going to veer off into areas that you don't feel you know suit the show or don't suit your I guess taste 
And then next, I think it comes in in really the it's two areas. It's the visual and it, and it's uh, it's performance. So for me, my approach with Dead Still, which has a lot of comedic elements in it and was certainly designed to be a, a, a drama with strong comedy chops. Um, my approach was not to design for comedy at all. So to absolutely design and, and shoot the show as a, as a full-blown drama because out of that, um, then you allow the performance to dictate um, comedy. And that is not to say that um, the any of the performers, I, I think any of the actors in the show were at any time uh, really felt like they were in a comedy. I certainly directed the actors to never play for comedy um, because it's much funnier that way. If they, you know, if they suddenly find themselves in a ridiculous situation, um, and they don't know it and they're protesting against it, then it's much, much funnier than trying to get them to play the ad and ad comedy. So some of that is, is taste. Um, you know, my, my taste lends itself to, to drama, but, you know, comedy is just part of life. That's the way I approached it. Um, you know, we've all been in, in experiences like our shows about death. Um, you know, it's in the environment we're in today, you, you can find yourself dealing with a difficult scenario, but, there's a point when everybody laughs. There's a point when something crazy happens and you just laugh or something happens to, to lighten the burden. It's kind of what it means to be human. So for this show, for Dead Still, I thought the, the comedy is there and, and let it rise rather than trying to carry it around. With, with the tone, I mean, so that dictates the tone of the show to me is, is how the central characters in it kind of take their responsibility. And so they took it seriously. They they genuinely 100% wanted what their characters wanted, um, no matter how ridiculous they happened to be looking at the time. Yeah, yeah. I'm just laughing at because there's a bit in the, the very beginning of episode one where he's kind of set up this dead woman and he's so pleased with how she looks in the picture. And then her parents come in and fuss over and she's kind of let down then her hair is like, but she's just, I don't know how, if that was an actual like extra or an actor that she got to just be really still but she's just like anything over. It's just quite funny. And one thing that really popped into my head when I watched episode one and two was just, you have to laugh. Like you have to laugh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, actually that was a, a fantastic extra we had who um, she did a really, uh, a really wonderful job, but yeah, it comes out of, I think what, what's funny uh, to me is, is you're seeing people make an effort um, so in the opening scene of the show, our photographer Blenner Hassett, played by Michael Smiley, is, you know, he, he's an absolute perfectionist and um, uh, maybe a bit like a director, he, um, everything must be right. So when, he, you know, when humanity enters into the picture and suddenly there's messiness, um, I mean, he can hardly bear it. So that's something everyone can relate to a little bit. I can't say I wouldn't be upset if someone came in and sullied my shot. <laughs> I'm sure you can agree. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So another thing uh, I wanted to ask about was working with Deadpan and working with uh, some of the same crews that you've worked with before. Some of your key crews, you were talking about Owen McGee, first assistant director. Um, you know, I was just wondering if you could talk about working with 
you know, what your collaboration with Deadpan is and is it important to you to work with the same crews again um, and how that helps you kind of, how that helps you work and what, you know, because I know that you've obviously you did Can't Cope season two, but you've also done Shawnee and Flo with Deadpan. I, I guess with with the show, um, what is the most important I find is is actually who it's for. Um, and literally as in what audience, uh, where they are in the world and what kind of parameters are there for them. So it's actually, it's less about the company because for example, having worked, uh, as you say, with uh, Deadpan Pictures on Can Cope, Won't Cope, and then on this show, you couldn't really get two more different shows. Uh, and they were also made for quite different audiences. So uh, with Dead Stalers, you know, with primary, uh, the people putting up the money for it, um, being, being American and, and German, so, you know, we knew that our audience was, was worldwide and that does make it um, a different and, and a little bit more satisfying because, you know, you can aim, to, aim towards such a bigger, a bigger picture. With regards to crew and, and the people you work with and, and your heads of department, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, if you've worked with somebody before and you've had a good experience, um, then you're always going to try and work with them again. And usually it just it may happen that they're just busy or that um, that schedules can clash. But, um, you know, the making of film and TV is, is uh, it's a funny one. And there's almost a, a level of superstition involved. Sometimes uh, there's a lot of word of mouth recommendation and there's a lot of, you know, trust, you know, better the devil, you know, um, trust the ones you've worked with before. And, and I can understand, I can understand that. Um, the great thing is, when every project uh, you're meeting new people and working with new people because you even if you wanted to get the exact same crew as the last project it's really rare they'd all be free etc so then you've got new voices coming in and and that's kind of great you know it's kind of like a party and you know we had that party six months ago that was the best party ever let's try and recreate that uh, oh no so and so can't come and oh we're going to be in this person's garden instead oh okay won't be as good then if i know it's even better because the garden is better and the people are better and whatever, the drinks are better. So it's a bit like that, but um, you know, you'll, you will kind of live and die on, on the crew and, and how, how much they pull together. And on Dead Still, we just found that even though the budget was kind of low for, for period drama in Ireland, the, the crew, all of the crew from HODs uh, down to kind of standbys and people like that were just fantastic. And I think people had a good time on it um that came uh that came from i guess everybody inputting and feeling good on the set it came a bit from our our lead actor michael smiley who early on me chatting with him you know he had kind of decided that um this was going to be a tough shoot because it was tough very long hours and he had he had to carry a lot of the whole thing the amount of dialogue he had in every uh, scene and episode uh, was kind of crazy so we just decided you know we're going to keep up a good a good show and a good front for everybody else and and Michael was just fantastic at doing that and I think he you know he's a really warm and funny guy and he kept the mood up for everybody so that's what you want to do if you get lucky you get the right people and then just make the environment warm because it can be really stressful even if things are going well but if you kind of know that you know you've got clever hard-working creative people but they also have a sense of humor and you can kind of you know you can be kind you can be nice that that kind of works for me better than uh, an environment where where people are getting stressed and 
raising their voices and stuff like that. I don't think you need to do that. No, I know exactly what you mean. No matter what, the stakes are high on a set. They're always, they always feel high, mm. no matter what, you know? Um, and that is just, that's just it. And no matter, like, no matter what, and it's always better to, um, I totally agree, it's always better to have a, a, a little, uh, you know, as calm as that as possible, you know, as measured, as measured a, a, a mood as you can anyway in, in, that, in that moment. It, it is for sure, because you see, I think, particularly with actors who come to study, even the, the regular cast members, they can put so much pressure on themselves. You know, I've seen it where they're absolutely kind of beating themselves up because they're getting a line wrong or or they think they're not hitting a certain tone or mood. So if they're the ones doing that, well, then your job as a director is to try to get their comfort zone, you know, be as close as possible. Have everyone around being warm um making the ground kind of fertile for them so they can kind of let go of those worries and then suddenly out of that you'll see really nice sparks of performance and then you're in the edit room and you're always going to use that spark of performance over over another take so it's about um increasing their comfort level and it's not just to oh the, the talent or pandering to the talent i mean they are written they're putting them themselves on the line so uh, you gotta you gotta support them all the way I meant to ask you about location and I really do because um, it's really like everything feels it feels like a proper flesh out universe as I was kind of mentioning earlier a little bit with Dead Still and like how like how did you I suppose what locations are there how did you find them you know because it seems like such we have such a great Dublin and Ireland in general has such a great it's such a great venue I suppose for lack of a better word for a period drama. Yeah obviously on a show like this one, we had a lot of locations to find. Um, it's a busy enough show in terms of how much it moves around. And we didn't have the, the budget to build. So we weren't, we were never on a, on a set. We were never constructing, you know, locations. Even down to, we, we had need uh, in one episode for basically a ramshackle shed. So I thought, oh, well, we'll just build a ramshackle shed and it doesn't even, you know, we can knock it down afterwards and it... We don't see the back of it, et cetera. But we actually didn't have the budget to do that. So uh, ironically, um, finding beautiful 19th century interior drawing rooms, which we found all over Ireland or all over Dublin, rather from North Dublin to South Dublin, was easier than finding this ramshackle shed, which absolutely kind of wrecked the heads of myself and the production design department. The locations on this, uh, were a tough find but we had a, a really great um a great location manager and i think what was important was that from a production point of view the producers knew recognized the importance of of the locations and they didn't try to shoehorn too much into too little you know as a director you're always kind of having to protect something and i was this was i was glad that i didn't you know i felt support in that way in terms of locations uh, and didn't have to um, wedge too much into into something that was unsuitable. Now, of course, we had limitations because we we couldn't really shoot too much on on exterior streets. Um, and when we did, we had you know the wide angle lens had to be put away in the box because <laughs> we can only see you know six feet this way and four feet this way, which was kind of fun. Uh, and you know, believe me, I'd love to have had the expansive you know to close down streets for days on end all of that but it's it's great you know you're in when it comes to the interior locations 
uh, you're in these houses and uh, you, again, it's about the tone and the mood seeping in. And uh, that to me would help me when we were wrecking these locations. Um, you know, you get the photos from the location manager and you're like, yeah, this looks good. But it's only when you step in and you kind of get, oh, this, this smell or this like dust or as one of our crew claimed, um, mites biting insects or something. Don't ask. <laughs> it's only when you encounter the real world that you, you kind of say, oh, okay, this, this really fits with our tone. This really fits with the mood. Um, and then you kind of know you're in the right place. So we did have one or two locations that, you know, they were right for the tone, but they were not too enjoyable to film in. And that's always the way. But other, certain other of the locations almost started to feel like the home for the characters, you know, you, you were kind of happy going in there every day. So that was a, it's a mixture, having a, a great location manager and then having the, the production designer to, um, to flesh this world out then, which, which we were, we were lucky to have uh, really great HODs in both those departments. Yeah, I suppose finally, uh, what's next for you, Imogen? So being in the, the world we're in, the, the world of pandemics and all, um, I think everyone has down tools. I was, due to start on a project it would have been april and things are unfortunately up in the air so the last i've heard with regards to to things you know people are starting to talk about future projects now but i have not spoken to anyone about anything i might be involved in that's prior to september of this year uh in a sense uh, i almost feel that projects which have you know are prior to prep and they're very aware of the world we're in now may have a better chance uh, because they can design the shooting and, and the, all of the uh, all of the surrounds of the, the prep and shoot according to what we're in. Uh, so no, I'm I'm spending my time developing and and writing that old script I always said I'd write. <laughs> I'm actually writing a little bit every day, so that's it's kind of satisfying. It's kind of fun. Yeah, cool. Um, I'm so glad I've so enjoyed talking to you Imogen um, you know you're so insightful and uh, I've taken notes like for myself during this conversation I actually look forward to, to listening back to be honest but thank you so much and all the very best with Dead Still I wish you all the best I'm looking forward to coming over here um, I know it's in um, it's on Acorn only at the moment I think but soon to be on RT hopefully that's right um, yeah it's on a couple of channels uh, over in uh, the US and Canada at the moment and um end of june it's going to come to the uk australia and new zealand um and here as soon as uh, we can yeah a few a few people are looking forward to seeing it cool um all right thank you so much and uh yeah i hope you have a very good day and, and mind yourself in these unprecedented times i hope you get that script done and stay safe and stay sane thanks so much natasha it was great talking to you we must do it again soon see you soon cheers Bye. thank you Bye.